You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. excited for what will be a really wonderful conversation. Um, I am Emily. I am the outreach manager for the Ivy Bookshop in Mount Washington in Baltimore. Um, We are always so excited to partner with the Pratt for these events. I started my book-centric career in public libraries and we are so um, always so excited to be a part of whatever the Pratt does around the city. They're such an important institution. Um, A few little things that are happening at the Ivy. We are open every day from nine to noon for private browsing appointments. And then from noon to seven, we are open for open browsing, no appointment needed. Um, You can come anytime with um, up to six people we'll let in. So come see us. We are now at 5928 Falls Road. Um, Despite the um, unforeseen, well, I guess we knew it was coming, the weather today, um, Mm -hmm. we are always there. So come by. And from there, I'll, I'll pass it along to Tracy. Thanks so much. Thank you, Emily. Um, I know I've visited the new location in the snow and one day it'll be really warm and we'll be outside in the garden. Um, thank you everyone for joining us tonight. My name is Tracy Diamond. I'm the adult services coordinator at the Enoch Pratt Free Library. Um, and as I welcome you, I just wanted to tell you about a couple things. Um, happening at the library. Um, We have sidewalk service at 21 of our Pratt locations, so you can pick up books and other materials contact-free, as well as access mobile printing. Um, I've actually used the mobile printing at my local branch, so it's really wonderful to have that, you know, when we're potentially working from home or you need documents printed for some reason. And we also have hotspots available for customers. So call your local branch for more information. And before I pass it over to my colleague, Deborah Robertson, I also wanted to give people some Zoom and Facebook logistics. If you're tuning in through Zoom, please post your comments and questions in the chat. Um, We love seeing an active chat since we can't see all your faces in the audience. And if you're watching on Facebook, um, I will be monitoring the Facebook feed. So also please be really active on Facebook. We love seeing you there too. Um, So I will finish up with all of those logistics uh, because tonight we're so thrilled to host the panel, The Business of Publishing, African Futurism Edition. So I will pass it over to my colleague from the Humanities Department, Deborah Robertson. Hi everyone, I'm Deborah. And I am very happy to be here today with these fine authors. So I'm going to um, name each panelist, have them give a little bit of a blurb about themselves, and then we're going to go right dive into the questions. So our first person I'll introduce is Nettie Okorafor. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Nettie, and I am a writer of African Futurism and African Jujuism which are parts of science fiction and fantasy and, uh, and many other things, but that's what I do. <laughs> All right, thanks, Nettie. Next, Saida Agostini. 
Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Saida Agostini. I'm a queer Afro-Guyanese poet based here in the Baltimore area. Um, I'm really kind of obsessed with the ways that Black folks harness mythology as an act of resistance and liberation. Um, and I love kind of reimagining both historical events as well as kind of imagining Afrofuturism. And um, my most recent work is Stunt, which is a reimagining of the life of Nellie Jackson, a Black woman in Madam, an FBI spy who ran a brothel in Natchez, Mississippi for 60 years. All right, thank you so much for that. Next, we have Jalen Harris. Hello, I'm Jalen Harris. I'm also in the Baltimore area. Um, thanks for introducing us, Deborah and Tracy. I'm so honored to be with you ladies this evening. I am a poet, publisher, and educator. I run a press called Soft Savage Press, and my most recent work and publication is Exit to the Afro, and I like to describe it as a queer museum in verse. So I like to also imagine um, historical living and fictional characters throughout time and make them queer if they're not queer. Imagine their queer life if they are. That's what I do. Cool. All right. And last but not least, <laughs> Afua Richardson. Oh, you're muted. How about that, folks? All right. Sorry about that. My name is Afua Richardson, and I am an illustrator of comic books and graphic novels. And for the past 15 years, I've had the opportunity to work on, oh, goodness, um, Marvel's Black Panther World of Wakanda, um, X-Men 92, and most recently, um, Lovecraft Country with HBO. And uh, I am launching my first creator-owned uh, graphic novel called Aquarius, the Book of Myrrh, a modern retelling of mermaid myths and legends from all over the world, but initially African and American indigenous cultures. Great. Wonderful introductions from all of you wonderful ladies. Um, let's see. We're going to dive right in. So... First question was one that I was really, really looking forward to finding out myself. Um, as we know, African futurism is a way to explore the possible futures for Black and Brown people from a Black cultural perspective. So how is African futurism genre viewed in the publishing world? I'm going to throw this out to all of you just to see how what you guys think. So anybody can jump in. How about you, Saida? Um... It's, it's kind of hard to say. I think there's been like an increased appetite for it, but I will say that, I mean, there's always been an appetite for Afrofuturism um, as a practice, like among Black folks, right? And so I think that publishers are kind of catching up to the curve a bit um, because there always has been this kind of struggle or dynamic around this expectation that what Black makers and cultural workers will produce is Black trauma 
right? And so this kind of shift or move to say that, no, actually what we really want to be grounding ourselves Mm -hmm. in um, is kind of this practice of Afrofuturism, I think has been a really hard journey. Um, I don't necessarily know that I feel a ton of faith that this moment will always last, but I do think the beauty of what we create um, and document, um, regardless of whether or not it's fully acknowledged or recognized by mainstream places, um, is going to remain and expand. Wow. Yeah, I really, I agree with you on that. What about you, Nettie? What do you think? Um, I think that first we have to understand that Afrofuturism and African futurism are not interchangeable terms. They're, they both have their own their own definitions, and I'm not going to go into that because that's a whole other discussion. But I write African futurism, and um, and I and on top of that, I can only really speak to <clears throat> speak to my own experience because I think that that uh, people like writer, writers have all have separate experiences when it comes to publishing, and I know and it often depends on a lot of different factors. So for me, um, the the you know, the publishing world, like the way that I have, the way that I have um, encountered and, and, and watched how the publishing world has shifted, especially my first novel was, I have over, I don't even know, I've lost count how many books I've written, I think it's 14, I don't even know, it's a lot, um, but my first novel was published in 2000, uh, 2005, and the publishing world in 2005 was a just a world of difference between then and now like and I've watched it shift over a very short period of time I've watched that openness um, that openness really come into fruition over the last probably five years um, and and the way that I dealt with it in 2005 was was, was very much um, finding the right if we're if we're going to get technical about it finding the right relationships, finding the right publishers, finding the right editors to work with who were open to what I was doing. That was really, it wasn't that uh, I needed everyone to be open to what I was doing. I just needed that one publisher because I always had faith in the stories that I was writing. I, I just always did. I loved the stories that I was writing. So that was really where, um, where, where like the heart of the matter for me was loving what I was writing. So that was um, kind of what what pushed me to move forward, but the but the way that I went about it was were were those personal relationships and, and and finding the right people to work with. Oh wow, that's really amazing. Um, so what about you, Jalen? What did you think? Well, I'm an independent publisher, and amongst indie presses speculative fiction, there's a big appetite for it. And there are entire presses, publishers who pride themselves on only publishing speculative work and speculative work by Black people, centering Black people, African futurism. Um, And then also who prioritize publications or series. Maybe their whole press doesn't published speculative work all the time but I've noticed over the past few years that especially in the independent press world uh, more opportunities and centering of black speculative futures in print both art and literary print is it's popular and also because 
black people want to read about us like we want to read about us so for that reason um it's it's really grown and finally what about you Athela? i've seen a huge shift mm -hmm. and i think it has a lot to do with social media i think previously and i can speak to the the comic book world there seemed to have been a concern that if they were to get behind an African-American, Afrofuturistic or African-led character, that it would only be speaking to a minority. Mm -hmm. And in recent years, with the rise of social media and people being able to voice what it is that they will and will not buy, and what they want to see more of, and companies like Marvel and DC paying attention to those threads, they are producing content in kind. Where I've seen uh, an active search for Black creators, for minority creators, that maybe wasn't there before. And previous to uh, the rise of films like Black Panther, which I think changed the game for a lot of media. Um, I would see there would be attempts, like we're going to get a really, really great writer and an incredible artist behind Blade. And we're going to put everything we've got into it, except the media that was surrounding it didn't have the legacy that say Superman did. So as the media started to change and uh, there was more of an investment in, you know, films that showed some brown faces, um, the media also started to shift as well. There was a, a demand and also people started to feel like their voices were heard. And it's not to say that there were not um, black creators in the comic book world before him, you know, there's Larry Stroman, Sanford Green, um, Brian Stelfreeze, they've been there and they've been there for a while, but the industry being a lot smaller, there was a, a tendency to do what was safe and what was uh, already in existence. And so once people took a chance and said, you know what, I'm going to do this because I want to see this. I, I have, you know, I, I see these incredible people in my life and I want to see these incredible people in my fiction. And so once people started um, saying, yeah, you know what? I don't want to make just what sells. I want to make what's right. I want to make what's beautiful. And people changing that narrative for themselves, the whole conversation of what was being published started to change. So um especially in the past 15 years that I've, I've been a part of the industry and, and seeing the shift happen, there's, there's, a, there's a, not only a demand for change, but there is an eager pursuit of it. Whether or not that will say is, you know, that depends on whether or not people will go out and buy, so. <laughs> Well, what you all said was very, very important, I think, and it's going to lead into this next question a lot. Wait, can I have, can I make a point? Can, sure. I, can I add to um, Afua's point? Because there's also, okay, so, so um, 
social media being a big part of it, um, completely true. But I also want to put some responsibility on um, publishers and editors because you know there. I think that 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 need and want to to see black and brown faces in speculative fiction in just in general has mm -hmm. always been there. I think it's been there uh, strongly for a long time. I think that that um, that publishers or the, the those who make money did not have faith in this idea. Um, and I, and I, like, I just think of uh, Octavia Butler's covers that were whitewashed, Steve Barnes, even one of my book covers, they attempted to whitewash it. Like there was this, this idea that everyone, uh, or, I won't say it, well, you know what I mean by everyone, but <laughs> there's this idea that a lot of people bought into that if you put, if you made a story about black and brown people, then it wouldn't sell, it would only sell to a smaller, um, a smaller group of people. Uh, if you put our faces on the covers, then it would only sell to that small minority. That, mm -hmm. that belief was false and it has always mm -hmm. been false, but that belief has driven so much of the way things have been that like, and now it's, it's like social media has helped to dispel that myth, which is great. But I just feel like I don't want to let publishers off the hook that easily, oh, that no. quickly. You know, <laughs> oh, no. you guys were wrong <laughs> and we're pointing it out. Okay, fair. Uh, no, there's I, been, I absolutely agree. There's been a great shift and I've seen it even in being a librarian and being, yeah. um, being around all the books I've worked in, bookstores, libraries, uh, publishing house at one point, and there really is a really big shift. And that was one of the reasons why I wanted to have this program and especially during this month. <laughs> um, and what she used that Nettie actually really goes into the next question a lot because with this shift, with this rise in interest of speculative fiction, science fiction, African futurism, how and why do you all think that this is so important for colored people, people of color, people black and brown to see themselves and their cultural and societal issues depicted for all writers to understand the plights mm -hmm. that they're going through? I'll start with you, Nettie. Oh. <laughs> I'm trying to calm down. <laughs> um, okay, uh, so how, okay, so just to simplify it, uh, why is it important for us to see ourselves and for other people to see, see, to see us? I mean, that's just the beauty of diversity. It's important. I think it's like, uh, it's, it's the, the power of, um, of story, of storytelling, um, for us to see, for, for everyone to be able to walk in their own shoes and, and in other people's shoes. And I think there's a, there, to see yourself in a story, um, to see yourself be the one to put on the astronaut suit, uh, there, there, it's, it's empowering, of course. It, it shows you possibilities. I mean, you know, there is this, the idea that, like, and, I, and I've always felt this way that you don't necessarily have to see something to believe it's possible. You know, creating the impossible or those things that you've never seen before, of course it's possible. That's, you know, I, I kind of dwell in that, in that area. I don't feel I have to see it to believe it's possible, but there is such strength in seeing it. I just remember when I first read Octavia Butler, like I was already writing, you know, speculative fiction that was based in, in African um, folklore and in, in place and all of that. I was already writing it, but then to read what she was doing was just, was just, it like, everything it, it aligns so much you know and, and so that's that's what I was missing because I didn't grow up seeing reflections of myself in those magical stories and those 
those um, those science fiction stories that I wanted to see. I, I didn't grow up seeing any of that. So, so that feeling was intense. It was intense. And I think that every everyone deserves to have that. It's almost like a validation of self, you know, to see your, your, yourself reflected in these stories. So there's that. But then there's also the, the, the power of, and this is where we're looking at, um, we're, we're not looking at black and brown people. We're looking at, at white people who do need to see the experiences and stories of others for their world to be to be to be whole you know so I, I just I feel like it's it just comes down to um, the importance of of diversity why is diversity important it's it's the, the answer is the same the answer is the same that's definitely true what about you Jalen what do you think I mean I started writing speculative work because I had questions around my own queerness, my own history that I wasn't getting answered. And so, and I also noticed how often black women in history, where our legacies, the, the ways that we remembered are in our struggle, you know, and not necessarily like our love. And I, I remember the very first poem I ever wrote combining the question of like what are what are my queer ancestors and like what is um Ida B what was Ida B Wells doing before she read, wrote Lynch Laws you know <laughs> and like not that mm -hmm. we know Ida was queer but I know that she's a loving person and I know nothing about her her love her love life her her loving heart outside of her writing to black people and committing her life to that and so I mean it was then that I was just like okay well I want to write a piece with her and, and Francis W. Harper as lovers because that for me is satisfying the need to understand my history also gave me an opportunity to study the language and the lives of these women and so I guess in my own selfish way or my own um nerd curiosities I just wanted an excuse to learn more of my history but I also wanted to feel like I was relating to my history in a way that was expanding the understanding of my own legacy that it wasn't just struggle and pain and hurt but possibility and love and loving expression you know so that's why I started writing speculative work and it's important for other young queer and and that's the other thing I noticed about speculative African spe futurism is that l young people love it I'm an educator and I teach elementary and middle school and I'm so happy when I see my kids holding Nettie Okorfor's work <laughs> you know like <laughs> I love I love seeing and I love when the, my black students are reading, I, what, whether it's graphic novels, novellas, or longer works, like, because I know they feel validated. And that's why I've been writing poetry that validates myself so that as my audience expands, readers see themselves, you know? You know, that's really interesting. I used to be a young adult librarian and I had this one boy, he was such an avid reader. He loved the book clubs, he loved everything. He would always be there reading something. And he was talking to me about um, Percy Jackson. 
and how much he liked it. But but when he found now, of course, you know, Rick Riordan is not African American, but when he read the Cain Chronicles, which were about you know Egyptians, he was just like, oh my gosh, I finally get to see something like me in this. When you know, usually you don't get to see that. And so, you know, I think that's really important, especially for you to be able to see that. What do you think, Afua? You know, I um, I realize that a lot of people, especially as adults, they get their ideas about the world from the entertainment that they consume. If you are what you eat, then you are what you read and you are what you watch too. Those become part of your unconscious narrative. Mm -hmm. And if your unconscious narrative says Black people are only this, uh, Inuits are only that, um, Asians are only this, then you'll unconsciously start to narrow your perspective in your mind. Because many times entertainment is where people experience other people's cultures and if it's derogatory or misinformed then their fears are also informed by the media also so it's it's almost like a uh, a mirror providing an accurate mirror not a warped mirror or a cracked mirror but providing a clear and straightened mirror for people to see the realm of possibility uh, in themselves. I think uh, Prince said it best, dreams are the life you lead. (laughs) 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 And that's what I feel about, um, you know, just just all forms of media and creation. I I remember being uh, a little girl and seeing Jackie Joyner Kersey and thinking, that is the strongest woman alive. I want to be her. And Chitara from the Thundercats. <laughs> Chitara, yes. yes, yes, yes. I was like, I don't know about yes. those nails. I don't know about those nails, but um, you know, I'm gonna run because that's strong. She's strong and she's beautiful and she's a champion. And she's on my cereal. <laughs> you know, like, like she. Has- <laughs> there, there was Carl no was difference awesome. between her and a fictional character because they were both coming from the same place, my television. So creating those those mirrors where someone can look and say, yeah, you know what? I can look at this person and even if they don't look like me, you know, I am an, an Irish girl living in you know downtown Manhattan, but I see this strong you know beautiful black woman and strong doesn't necessarily mean you know uh what (laughs) what strong gets air quotes gets slapped onto people that that has so many different kinds of definitions just being able to show um i know diversity gets used a lot but just the different shades and hues and the complexities of human consciousness in these different fictional characters is just such a, a it's there's such a great opportunity to share 
an experience with someone else in a way that's entertaining and in a way that someone can relate to a, a fictional character. Because that's what we think about all of these, these shows that we watch, these books that we pour hours into why do we care there are relationships that are happening between these characters that we become enthralled by and so as a as a creator sometimes I feel that there is pressure on me to make something that um that is black like you must make beautiful (laughs) black people and I'm like no I make what I like (laughs) <laughs> it just also happens to be brown and an African or you know um Chukta or you know Algonquin or whatever I take the time to research and I just I don't know I'm sorry I'm geeking out I'm just <laughs> I'm just this this week I've been you know kind of coming out of a funk and saying you know what I get to create for a living. Yes. (laughs) This is wonderful. I get to participate in something that changed me so profoundly that no matter what I was going through, the things that I saw in in Harlem during the 80s, my mind was changed by the books I read, the music I listened to. And so now to be able to give back to that and sit on a dais with such wonderful women, (laughs) you know, whose work I I absolutely admire. Um, It's a good day. day. (laughs) It is a good day. (laughs) What about you, Saida? I feel like for me, a lot of it comes from the fact that I come from a family of trash talkers. Right, like, like you don't really have a choice about what you're writing when every single thing that comes out of your family's mouth is either a wildly misinterpreted truth or just a, just just a plain out lie, right? Um, and I'm gonna preface this by saying that um, you know, so I was really fortunate. I got a grant to go um, back to Guyana, where my family is from in South America, and I was doing research for my first collection of poems. And it was fascinating to have all of these stories coming at me from my family, right? And very specifically, the emergence of mermaids. So, you know, I found out that like several of my family members said they were kidnapped by mermaids or like their great uncles or aunties were kidnapped by mermaids and they knew it because like they were all wet. And I was like, but y'all live by a river, right? Um, And so what is fascinating to me about this is that like, this is all stuff that they didn't want to tell me because they were scared I was going to write about it, which I did. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Like you do not, (laughs) right? But but I think like where that comes from is this like constraint of white shame, right? Like Mm. if I tell you how I survived an incredibly abusive man and like raised up nine children in a two bedroom house by the Pomeroon, you're going to tell this story and I'm going to look like a fool. When the reality Mm. is, is that you found a way in like the 1930s 
with with no prospects as a black and an indigenous woman to keep your children alive and get us to the point where you have a great great grandchild who is now writing books about your story and I never wonder where my next meal comes from mm-hmm. that is that I'm not saying that I'm in any way the reflection of liberation but that is a direct correlation to the work and the power that you put in right? And so for me, like when we talk about speculative work, and I'm coming at it from the narrative of being a poet, is really all I'm doing is recontextualizing the resistance work that has been happening in our people for like generations, right? And it's also because, I mean, quite frankly, I want to see me. I'm a fat Black woman, right? (laughs) I need to know that in the narratives that I see, in the narratives that in, in a world where I walk through, you know, where I don't get to see myself, right? That I could write poems like two fat black women making love and like know that it's not a joke. <laughs> and know that like it's part of me contributing to a world where I'm being celebrated and centered in my pleasure and everything that is beautiful and lovely about me and my people. So yeah, that's why I do what I do. And also I just like talking trash. (laughs) (laughs) Oh goodness. I love these answers. Um, We're cutting short on time. Unfortunately, there is a question from a person and I'll get to that when we get to the Q and a, but I have like one more question. I'm going to roll into one, two questions. I'm going to try to make them one. (laughs) I keep my answer short. (laughs) Would you have viewed yourselves differently in youth if you were younger and there had been African futurism works of fiction for children and young adults? And in thinking of that, put yourself into the future, what are some mistakes that first writers make when writing African futurism? So anybody can jump in. How about you, Jalen? Okay, I'm going to go the last question first. Mistakes young writers make when starting to write African futurism, I feel like it's the same mistake that any writer, content creator, um, Black person who, yeah, could make. And that's really just not writing to themselves or for themselves as mirror. Writing for white people, writing for white Mm -hmm. imagination, white gays, like, um, huge mistake. Um, Yes. And... The second, the first question was, if I was little, when I was little, if I'd had, yeah, mirrors. Absolutely. I mean, I've, I mean, I've been nerdishly, geekishly watching Star Trek Voyager since the day it came out, <laughs> the day it was born in 95. I've been watching it for the last 25 years. And like to see Tuvok on that screen all those years and then to now be so big and so, so grown and see uh, uh, Sonequa Martin Green as Michael Burnham. And discovery like I just it, it for me it's a through line from the time that I was a child and I saw Tuvok I was like oh I could be a Vulcan like Vulcans are <laughs> too, you know and like, now I, I I'm so like validated by the images that I see but I I don't think that um lack of images and the very the scarce images I clung I clung to and the and the scarcity I think it made me understand that all things were possible. And like poetry is inherently about possibility, right? That's, that's like what the line is, the unit of measuring. It's measuring possibility. Um, I have a great 
poetry teacher, Stephen Leva, used to always say that sentences are about meaning, lines are about possibility. And I think, like, I'm so fortunate to be in a genre that inherently is about duplicity. And, um, yeah, so. Yeah, that's a great answer. Wow. (sighs) Yeah, I know I would have viewed myself a lot differently if they had a lot more books, you know, especially science fiction books about it just didn't even have to be black you just black people in science fiction would have been better like when i saw octavia butler i I was just like enthralled and i was just like Mm -hmm. oh my god i want to be like her (laughs) what about you nettie what do you think yeah i think that um uh i think that i would have uh if if i had black speculative books when i was growing up because i had none all of the books that I read were by white authors. I, I actually avoided a lot of science fiction because it just felt very white and cold and male, you know? And, and I, was, I, I was attracted to the concepts, but whenever I would read it, I was like, these were worlds that not only didn't ref- have any reflections of me, like anyone who looked like me, but which is fine, but the worlds felt like worlds where I could not possibly exist. That's not mm-hmm. fine. You know, so so I you know I didn't have any of that. Um, I think that if I did, I would have recognized myself sooner. And what I mean by that is like, I've always been very creative. I've always been like, you know, just very imaginative. I was born that way, and I, it wasn't it wasn't um, it didn't feel it wasn't that I I had any issue with myself. I, I've always accepted what I, you know, who I am and, and all of the sides of my complexity. It's just that I didn't recognize myself. And, and it took me, like, I didn't start writing stories, actively diving into the creativity of making the story up myself, of writing the story myself until I was 20. You know, it, it never crossed my mind. I didn't come from that kind of family. I, both of my parents are Nigerian doctors. You know, you didn't veer in that direction. You were not, you know, there were three careers, doctor, lawyer, and failure, you know, that kind of thing. (laughs) Like, that's not even a joke. So you didn't, you didn't go into the arts in my family. And I think that if I had those books, I would have recognized myself. I would have recognized, you know, the way that I saw the world and my interests and what I was attracted to, because I was very strongly attracted to spec the speculative I was stro- strongly attracted to um like the uh, Igbo folklore and traditions all, I've always been attracted to them and if I had those types of books and they didn't have to be about Nigeria they didn't have to they could just be any kind of black speculative fiction if I had those books when I was growing up I would have I would have understood it immediately you know and I, I would have really I think I would have greatly benefited and I would have I would not have taken so long to get there um, in terms of mistakes that that young writers um, have made, yeah, that that the whole thing of not telling your story, that you know, being being afraid to tell your story and not telling your story. Um, I know writers who who didn't feel that that, um, and I I'm, I know this has changed now, but this was only a few years ago. Who didn't feel that that anyone wanted to read about black people, so they wrote only white people, black writers who were writing only white people. And they did that for years. And then eventually they just finally, you know, did the inevitable, which was right about black people. But like, I think that's a mistake that I see a lot, um, not telling your story, being afraid to tell your your story. And, and also 
feeling like no one's going to read your story. Someone, there's always someone who wants to read your story, always. And I think that's a mistake. That, that fear, that, that uh, everyone has fear, but succumbing to that fear is the mistake I see most often made. I can actually attest to that. I'm an aspiring writer, even though I'm a librarian. <laughs> and I've been trying to tell this one story. It's about me for 10 years now. Hopefully someday I can finally feel my truth and finish this novel. But let me ask, we have two more people we're gonna ask and then we are gonna go into the Q&A from people outside. So how about you, Saida? What did you think? Sure, um, I guess like if I, well, I have to say there was one book that I absolutely loved and it was The People Could Fly. Um, oh, yes. And I don't think that in the moment that I was like, yes, you know, eight-year-old Saida was like, you know what this is? This is, you know, speculative. <laughs> <laughs> but you know now looking back on it I mean it's the book I'm obsessed with I literally have tattoos from it you know like and I think it was like this foundational text that I read that was like yes like black folks have gone through a lot of trauma but look at all of these really beautiful ways in which we have reinvented and reimagined our lives right and if I think if I had more books like that like more books about like goofy black girls who were big they don't have they don't have to be from Guyana but you know um who like wearing a Shakespearean gown from time to time you know I, I probably would have like move from move from this place that I still struggle with around like feeling that I'm judging myself based on a standard grounded in whiteness as opposed to my own my myself or like my people or my community right um and that's that's huge, right? Like, even as I say it, like, I get a little bit emotional because I think about when I go out, well, not now, but when I go and do readings <laughs> pre-COVID, you know, yeah. theoretically, once once we once we all got vaccines, you know, one of the most powerful things that happens is, like, when I have, like, young Black folks coming up to me and they're like, that thing you said, like, that's what I'm scared to say. Thank you for saying it right? Mm. And not even young Black folks. Like, shoot, I got folks my own age. Like, I don't know how to tell this, or I'm scared of my family judging me, right? Yeah. And mm. I'm like, do you want to tell the truth, or do you want to be beholden to that fear, right? And so I think, like, what Afro, what, what, this, what this kind of work does is, like, hold up, like, a possibility model of, of what you can do, because I'm not special, right? Like, I know that. Like, I think I'm just part of a really dope group of folks who make everything look good, including <laughs> <laughs> if I can do it, everybody can do it, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, in terms of what I would say to um to to like writers who are doing this work, is I think you know one of my favorite quotes is um you know you know I don't know about y'all, but when you were little, did your parents ever say to you, you 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 trying to write a check that your ass can't cash, right? <laughs> and I think you should write those checks. You should like as a writer, like why worry if it's going to be good enough or, you know, who's it going to be good enough for, or whatever, like, write your truth. You know, one of my favorite poets, Angela Jackson, was talking about, she's an older poet, she said, you know what, I haven't gotten the same accolades that other, you know, that my contemporaries have, but it's not about that. The joy is in the work. If you can't go back to the work and rejoice in what you've created, then you're in the wrong place. And finally, what about you, Athor? Well, um, I get a lot of young or even uh, just 
folks of all ages who are creating their comics at different phases in their life and their career and they're they're just getting started but um they don't know how to move forward and one of the mistakes that i think that they make is that they try to make their epic saga now Mm. and they want to have everything fleshed out every character drawn everything you know like fully conceptualized and turned around but it starts with one page and there's there's this focus on making the next star wars and the the next avengers and the next this and it's like no be the first you mm-hmm. <laughs> yes <laughs> you know start with you you're enough mm-hmm. as you are this is fine and you're not going to get any better until you complete things so complete small things and just keep moving forward your giant mega story is full of a whole bunch of little stories so finish one of those even if it's just one page mm-hmm. from start to finish you know create this arc create something that if someone didn't read another page of your work, it was finished. Do that and then double it. <laughs> Keep going. Well, I definitely take all you guys' advice. I'm going to finish that book. going to finish it. Yes. <laughs> Just, you know, make a list also what you want your story to say. And sometimes you won't have the whole thing pictured out, but you know the moments. You know what you want it to to feel like and sometimes you don't have an idea you just think about what it is that you like just start writing that list and then rewrite the list and then rewrite the list and it's in that revision process where you're like okay okay what I want to do is not so far away (laughs) because we put this monument of a novel or you know an epic comic book 50 page saga in front of Mm -hmm. us and it seems impossible it's it's okay. Baby steps. Baby steps are important. And <laughs> as you make those, you know, as you make those steps, pat yourself on the back, you know, like it's okay. Yeah. To yep. <laughs> because if you associate pain with creating mm-hmm. this project, then you're not going to finish. But you also have to ask yourself, if another three or four years goes by and you don't finish it, are you going to be happy? If your life is exactly the way it is right now, with you not having finished what you want to finish, what's on your heart, are you going to be happy? Hmm. And what will benefit you from making this? You know, just asking yourself these questions where you kind of, even with your story, you know, you might not necessarily know how to make this particular story different than what's out there. Start asking what if, who are these characters? What are these scenarios? Who do they have to be? What, do they need to change within themselves and who's going to help them get there? Those are great, great comments, guys. Oh, was there anything else you wanted to say, Afla? Oh, I was just going to say, if I had um, some of the cool stuff that's out now back then, um, I think my dad may have thought differently about my career path. Because even when I was younger, I wanted to do... Uh, art and music as a career and you know as a black man coming from Tuscaloosa Alabama being a sculptor and a painter and a physicist who you know was denied a lot of opportunities because he was the wrong color he didn't want me to get hurt Mm -hmm. and so he wanted me to do art but he didn't want me to pursue it as a career because Mm -hmm. he didn't want me to be disappointed 
you know, and, and I know this is true for a lot of families. Uh, a lot of times other people won't necessarily see your vision, not because they don't believe in you, but because they don't believe in the path. Yeah. Yeah. And they don't think that there's a place for you. But what I'm finding is one, things are changing. And two, if there's no place for you, make a place, Right. make that place, make your own path. There's no path there, then knock down that wall. Mm-hmm. You know, that means I, that you can be of service because there's something missing. All right. I just wanted well, to add one thing. I'm so, is it okay? Mm-hmm. Sure. So if, when you said that, like, you just made me think about one other thing. Like, I, I think we have such a huge capacity for faith. Like we can have faith in other people. We can mm. have faith in like the higher power. Mm. But the one person that I think is so often to hold faith for is ourselves. Oof. Right. And you know, one thing oh, that you know, <laughs> I, just, I just wanted to say because yes. I finished my first collection, like I had gotten a grant to go to Guyana for a month. I got an artist residency. I was writing my work. And yet, like I couldn't put that final manuscript together. I was like, no matter what it is, it's not good enough. Like I don't know what everything else I was reading out there, everyone else's poets work. I'm like, this is brilliant. What I'm doing is trash. And it took my took my one of my very best friends and mentors who's part of a poetry collective with me, another black woman to say, girl, just just put it together. I'll read it. And she took that time. She took it. And then when I submitted it out, like, I think within two months, like it was a national, Nash, it was a finalist in two national book awards. Like, mm. and, and I was, I was kind of stunned. Right. Because I was like, one, even if like, let's assume everyone thought it was absolute trash. Those were the, that's the, those are the stories of my family. Mm. Right. And I have faith in my work, even if I had to go out to Kinko's and sell it from the back of my yep. car. Hey. Yep. And then two, you know, just the power that other Black folks in your community, other people that are invested in your art and your creation can have, right? And so if they have that faith in you, what does it mean to have that faith in ourselves? Yeah. Girl, I didn't even... I said some really powerful (laughs) things. (laughs) All right, so let's take a few questions from the audience. I'm so sorry, everybody. (laughs) Okay, so um, the first one, she's from she asked a while ago her name's Amani Spencer and she asked what's the first memory you have of imagining the future and did you consider writing about it when you thought about it I'll go with you Nettie uh first memory I I have I uh that would uh I don't know (laughs) uh I don't know I was always imagining strange things I guess I could say that the first memory I had of imagining the future was when I was like four years old. And I, like I said, I'm very, I was a very imaginative kid from the very beginning. And um, I had this fear of ice. I was scared of ice because I would look at ice and I would see, I would see universes in it. And I was just terrified of that. And there was this one day where I left one of those uh, pay those, uh, you know, when you, you go to the beach and you make sandcastles with those plastic pails, I'd left, left one of those outside. This is when we lived in Indianapolis, left one of those outside in the winter. And it got filled with all this detritus, like leaves and twigs and dirt and all this stuff. And it rained and it filled with water and it all froze one day. And I went outside and I saw that it was frozen and I dumped it over 
And I looked into it and I, you know, my strange imaginative brain just saw like just you. And I, rem I remember this clearly. I saw universes in that ice. And I just remember thinking like, this is what, you know, this is like another dimension. This is what like, this could be a future like that I'm holding. So I guess that would have been my first, my first imagining of the future. It doesn't make any sense, but yeah, it is what it is. That, that's what popped into my mind just now. No, I don't think that's strange at all. I remember when I was a kid looking up at the ceiling of my bedroom and it was like one of those speckled ceilings. Yes. And I would look at them and I would see like strange shapes and I would imagine it's something different. Like there was this one that section I thought was a witch and this other section I thought was an eight. <laughs> I can see that. And, yeah, and I just take up all these little stories in my head, looking yeah. at these images on the ceiling. It's normal. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Okay. All Fair right. Enough. So <laughs> uh, I'm going to pick, I guess, Jalen to ask this question. Um, Tracy said we only have enough time for one more, I guess. So actually, I could ask any of you. Do any of you offer writing classes, workshops, consulting sessions for aspiring writers? And if so, what's the best way to get in touch? I used to, I was, I used to be a professor, but you know, I've, I've taken some time off from that. So not, not at the moment, not at the moment. Okay. What about you, Saida? Um, so a few things. So my, my poetry collective, the Black Ladies Brunch Collective, um, which literally started because I wanted to have brunch with other Black lady poets and eat and talk about Drake. Um, is <laughs> doing a workshop called Putting the O in uh, Miami for the O Miami Festival, which is about celebrating the pleasure of Black women and non-binary folks. Um, so please follow our page, Black Ladies Brunch Collective, um, on the Facebook for that. Um, in addition to that, um, I think we're going to hopefully um, do a workshop after I manage. This is me writing a check I can't cash. I, I asked <laughs> to create a choreo poem about the chapbook I just wrote. And then I'm hoping to do a series of workshops this summer about the process of creating choreo poems about your families and other people that you want to document their histories. And you can just check out my website, saidaagostini.com for that. Okay. What about you, Jayla? I think you said that you were a teacher. Yeah. So, I mean, you got to be seven through 14. To... <laughs> <laughs> I do that all day. Hey, do. we may have some. We may have some 14-year-olds in here. <laughs> <laughs> and what about you, Afro? Uh, I have a group on Facebook called Dr. Foo's Lab. It's for professional and aspiring artists to just post and share things that inspire them, some of their work or figure drawing studies. And if they need critique, the group there is very kind. And we also do um, biweekly uh, Google Hangout sessions where we just sort of chat and draw and, and work remotely and you know, kiki it up while... Um, talking about the industry and helping to develop your art or getting someone to just look at your work while you're working on it and, and get a perspective. And so um, I, I have the group there and, and it has about maybe uh, 1700 members, but uh, it, it's a really, really great community. And I'm so proud of everyone there. They're, they're really, really trying and, and pushing forward. And whenever I get jobs that I can't do, I always look to the lab first 
to see if there's someone there who can uh, take the job on, or I'll look and see, like, and I'll message them privately, like, hey, you know, I have this opportunity, but I can't do it, and and always pay it forward, like, like others have to me. So, Doctor Foo's Lab on Facebook, D O C T A, <laughs> like Doctor. Well, <laughs> Afua, Jalen, Nere, Saida, I thank you all for joining us here at the Pratt. We love authors as always and i especially love this genre and i want i'm wonderful knowing that i got to host all of you thank you, thank so, you much. so much yeah thanks for having us yeah thank you nice to meet everybody bye everyone take care This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.